Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free fitness to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is the Secret Library Podcast. And I can't believe it, but we are at season nine. This season, we are exploring the reality of publishing now. We've talked about publishing in the past, but given how quickly things change and the ways that we have to reevaluate and consider our options all the time, It felt particularly essential as some shockwaves move through the publishing industry, especially in the U.S., that we look at what it means to put a book out in the world right now. We have a series of interviews I know you will love, and without any further wait, let's dive in. My guest today is Stephen Rowley. He is the New York Times bestselling author of Lily and the Octopus, a Washington Post notable book of 2016, The Editor, which was named by NPR as one of the best books of 2019, The Gunkle, a Goodreads Choice Awards finalist for 2021 Novel of the Year and winner of the 22nd Thurber Prize for American Humor, and The Celebrants, a Today Show read with Jenna Club Pick. His fiction has been published in 20 languages, and all of his books are in development for a feature film or television adaptation. He's originally from Portland, Maine, is a graduate of Emerson College, and currently resides in Palm Springs with his husband, the writer Byron Lane, and two rescue dogs. It was such a treat to speak with Stephen because his books have such heart in them. And There isn't a fear to go into sadness, but he does so with such a deft touch and manages to preserve the humanity and the humor. And I really enjoyed exploring the process of bringing this cast of characters to life, of the callback to the film The Big Chill, which is such... Uh, has such memories for me, especially the soundtrack from when I was young. And there is something about putting a book out in the world 
that is meant to remind us to look at the important things in life that really spoke to me. Stephen really is able to hold both sides of this in his writing, in all of his books. And this one, The Celebrants, which we speak about today in particular. So I will let Stephen speak for himself about the book, but I know you will enjoy this conversation when we talk about putting something out that is meant to remind us of who we are and what's important to us and the things in life that last and how they change over over time throughout friendships and relationships. So I'm very, very excited to introduce Stephen Rowley. Hi, Stephen. Thank you so much for coming on. Hi, thank you for having me. So uh, we were starting to talk before recording about the pain of glasses and aging. And I've noticed in your books, at least the ones I have read, The Gunkle and The Celebrants, that there is a theme about the bittersweetness of getting older and what that means, and also the ways you can look at the present in life differently. So I'm wondering how that theme first became significant to you and if you were aware of it before you started writing books or if it became obvious when you were writing them. <laughs> I'm giving you a, um, like a fruitcake, real dense question at the beginning. Yeah, no, two things popped to mind immediately. Mm. Um, so the celebrants, uh, this new novel was inspired sort of early on the pandemic when we were all sheltering at home. And like many other people, I was scrolling through Netflix or Hulu or, you know, any of these subscription services looking for um a movie to watch, something that might bring me comfort, something I had a passing familiarity with, but you know, wasn't uh, hadn't seen a million times. Um, and I stumbled across the movie, The Big Chill. And if anyone remembers that movie from the early eighties, it's about a group of college friends coming back together after the death of one of their own and sort of contemplating middle age and where they are in their lives and what aging feels like and um, you know, what the back half of their lives will feel. Um, and I was struck that everyone in that movie was 35, 35 years old. <laughs> and I'm like, Were they some, really? Yeah. Cause you look at the pictures was, and their hair, it's like the hair in that era aged everyone so much. It really is funny because as, as uh, someone who was facing his 50th birthday that year, like I did not find that comforting. I did not find that no. comforting at all, but it got me really thinking about how we um, think about aging and middle age and what middle age is and how that's really changed over the past 40 years. And there, you know, bringing it back to glasses, which we were talking about, there's a scene <laughs> on the first page of the book where one of that was inspired by something that happened in, in real life where I gathered with some of my college friends at a restaurant and someone had to pull out their reading reading glasses and someone else had to turn on the flashlight on their phone to read the menu. And a third friend was like, it's so loud. And when restaurants become so loud, you know, and I'm like, what happened to you people? Like you got old, like what is, what's going on? Fortunately, that's not happening to me. And oh, no, never. And uh, you know, it's just that you can't see it on yourself in the same way. But I, I did have a moment of great uh, affection uh, for these people. And, you know, we've been friends for more than 30 years now. So, uh, and it wasn't just 
based on the length of time I've known them, but, but really who we are now. I sort of almost like this version of ourselves better. We've survived and we've stuck together. And, um, and uh, you know, I, I found that to be very meaningful. Absolutely. One of the other things that I love about the story, and I'm interested in how you came up with this, is this idea of a pact that they will all come together when someone needs it to have a funeral while they're still alive. So that, Mm -hmm. and that you can invoke this one time in your life and that the funerals are not all in the same place or not all done the same way. They're very tailored to the person. So I Mm -hmm. would just love to hear about the thought process around these funerals and how you constructed them. Yeah, so indeed, the the celebrants, uh, the the my new novel is uh, it is about a group of college friends who, right before graduation in 1995, lose one of their own to suicide, and after attending his very real funeral and hearing the things said about him um, and all the wonderful eulogies, wonder if he hadn't been alive to hear those things said, if he perhaps might have made a different choice. And so they make this pact, as you say, to come back together in each of their lowest points in life, because they're about to scatter to the wind after graduation. Um, It's sort of an insurance policy in a way, this pact, and they don't, I don't think they think they'll ever use it. Um, But yeah, life has a way of interceding. And uh, at a moment's notice, they drop everything, reassemble and throw that person there their sort of living funeral and force them to hear these sort of eulogies and, and things said about them to remind them how important they are and how much they're needed here. Um, and the pact, you know, over the years, I think loses some of its intention and seriousness. Someone has a destination funeral. There's a surprise funeral for someone else, which was, uh, you know, kind of a way to, to skewer wedding culture in a way. I, I Originally, I think I came up with a just a single joke in my head, which was, Instead of four weddings and a funeral, four funerals and a wedding. And I wondered uh, about that when yeah. you, because you do say it, there is someone who says that. Yeah, yeah. And it, you know, I don't, this is, this is a book that celebrates life and, and hopefully is filled with joy and, and is very funny. Um, so it's not, you know, we're not losing people left and right. It's not, it's not a sad book, but one that hopefully reminds us to, uh, to live. Yes. Yeah. I was, <laughs> I just found this this juxtaposition of the real feeling of sadness because this could easy easily become slapstick in a way, yeah. it could but it does become maudlin in a way too. Exactly, um, so finding that balance, and you know, it, we talk about craft a bit. I, that's something I take very seriously um, in my work. I'm very honored that uh, my previous novel, The Gunkle, just won the the Thurber Prize for American Humor. And Yay. that was, uh, yeah, something that was very meaningful to me because humor is such a part of all of my work. But, you know, humor is a serious business. I, um, you know, you can easily write one or two jokes too many in a scene and it can really, you know, just like a vacuum, just suck the, the um, emotion out of what you're trying to accomplish with the scene. And likewise, too, if you go too long without giving a reader the opportunity to take a breath with a laugh, you know, it could weight the scene in a, in a perhaps more seriously uh, in the other direction than you intended. And so um, that finding that balance, um, I think, is is absolutely essential. And sometimes it's taking a scalpel to the manuscript and sort of line by line and understanding, uh, you know, reading aloud my work uh, 
out loud is always part of my process too, just to really fine tune that balance. So when you, when you have a scene, just to really mm-hmm. slow this down and expand it, is there, is there a process you approach as you're writing it? Is it just writing the moment as you would write it normally? And then it's upon reflection going back that you look at, I, I don't know, because one of the characters is a music executive. I'm thinking mm-hmm. about like mm-hmm. remixing, turning this instrumentation <laughs> up a little bit, turning this one down. I love that. I've never had that specific thought. That's so brilliant. Um, yeah, I think, you know, originally when I write a first draft, so this is a novel about a group of friends, right? And so what do friends do when they hang out? They drink. No, then they, they laugh. They, <laughs> they laugh, they you know, usually. And so the challenge in this novel was creating these, you know, you're creating people out of whole cloth, but then creating these relationships, right? These friendships. And you want them to feel lived in and time worn and, um, you know, to have there be insecurities and longstanding resentments and, and perhaps crushes over the years and inside jokes that uh, make them feel, you know, these friendships feel very true to life, but in a way that doesn't exclude uh, the reader. And I think when I write a first draft, I just sit down and hang out with these friends, you know, as if they're my friends and write it as if I'm, um, I'm just, uh, you know, we're all just hanging out and kicking it and, and having fun. And then I start sculpting, uh, you know, after that, I've got all of this down on the page and, I, you're right. It is very, it's very much like mixing uh, and, and uh, fine tuning, bringing up a level here, bringing someone else's level down. You know, it's always challenging to write scenes in which uh, a large number of characters appear and almost for this entire book, the entire friend group uh, is together. And so that was um, something that required like making sure each character was serviced uh, and we had, and just orienting the reader, you know, knowing where that character was, what they were doing, even if they weren't speaking for a little stretch of time. Um, all that comes from crafting second, third, fourth, fifth drafts of, uh, of the book once you've sort of laid down uh, your original tracks. We're in danger of overextending the metaphor, but. I know, but I'm like, now I'm really dedicated to it. But it's the other thing to me too, speaking of that reminds me of something that's such so difficult to do and which is, I mean, it feels effortless. I know it wasn't effortless for you is writing group dialogue because mm-hmm. for a very, very long time, I did, I, I, I always wrote books like they were a series of two person conversations right. and any third like person who appeared, almost, yeah. it felt like the big Lebowski. <laughs> and it was like, Donna, you're out of your element. It was like the third person <laughs> was just like not coming in there. And is there any other than rereading and reading aloud? Do you have any thoughts or insights for people trying to write dialogue that involves more than two or three people and make it not just a tangled mess? Yeah, when I wrote The Gunkle, um, which is about sort of uh, an uncle in Palm Springs who, who takes custody of his niece and nephew for the summer, I gave one of the kids a lisp, which I thought, you know, yes. was so brilliant at the time. I'm patting myself on the back because then I didn't have to tag <laughs> every piece of dialogue, right? He said, she said, Maisie said, Grant said, be fed, clear yeah. which mm-hmm. child is talking. And then um, for the first time in my life, I actually narrated that audiobook. And And when it oh, came time no. in the recording studio, I was like, son of a bitch, like who did, that? <laughs> who did this? <laughs> now I've got to perform this list? That seems uh, impossible. So um, 
Yeah, I, it, it, there's a real sort of danger in just the, the sort of business on, on the page of, of tagging dialogue or giving a character an action. You know, I certainly can lean into favored terms um, a lot, rolled their eyes, shrugged, those sorts of things, which, you know, you, you want to absolutely steer clear of. I don't know how I do it, except I grew up in a large family. I'm sort of used to large, you know, having to fight to be heard a little bit and, uh, and uh, um, lots of people talking at once. And so I try to, you know, I try to draw from, from real life, I think, to make these scenes, you know, it, it is, you know, for better or worse, they're, they're kind of a family. So um, they are draw from life. I know you were even bold enough to make two characters have the name. Jordan, which is uh, just... I do not recommend. I do not <laughs> so recommend. I was like, that is brave. Have the same name. What is wrong with me? What is mentally wrong with me? And they're um, involved. So it's even, if it's even trickier, but yeah, it works. Got, that stems from a fear of real life that I would, you know, that I would meet another Steven and, and people would go, should we invite the Steves? Oh, Oh my lord! Um, you know, and it just seemed like a, you know, it seemed like my own personal nightmare, and so of course I had to explore that. Oh yeah, you got to you got to work through it. Not only two characters named Jordan, but then having them fall for each other. Yeah, yeah, and then you have the Jordans. I yeah. kind of like that. I, I do like that because Jordan is a name that could be well. Same with Stephen. It could be a first or a last name. It could. It could also be a men, you know, a man's name or a woman's yep. name also. Exactly. Um, Sneaky. I'll take Stevie Nicks. I was going to say that doesn't work as well for Steven, but I'll take Stevie Nicks uh, for sure. I love it. I love it. What was the hardest part for you about writing this book? Oh, goodness. Um, I will say, you know, we've, we've tapped on uh, on some of it, like creating the creating these friendships that feel really sort of real. Um, but, you know, also reminding myself that, you know, these are these are people who graduated in 1995. They, they sort of lose touch for for a while. And there are long stretches in the book where they're not you know, they don't reunite. They're not together. Um, and at first, you know, it was going back and reminding myself of the technology because I graduated college in the mid 90s, too, before email, before cell phones, before social media. You know, it wasn't easy to keep track of people. And then likewise, too, you know, even when we did all sort of reunite and come back together um, later on, we had lives that were separate from, um, you know, from these friendships. And, and so they, it wasn't like college anymore where we did everything en masse. Um, and so, uh, creating, uh, storylines and, and ability to bring these characters back together that felt realistic, um, again, making the friendships feel real and, and lived in. And, um, then also, you know, I'm what we call in the biz, a pantser, you know, a classic pantser. Ooh, yeah. I don't, you know, I don't outline extensively before I begin. I usually have a good sense of the beginning and um, a decent sense of where I want to end up. And it's that everything in the middle that's, um, you know, I'm, I, when I sit down uh, to work each day, it's about discovery and surprising myself of what am I going to learn uh, today? And so crafting the, the ability for these characters to, to 
trigger this path and have them come back together and not have it feel repetitive. You mentioned earlier that each funeral is uh, as individual as the person it's thrown for. And so um, finding ways to sort of, you know, it's not like writing a time loop novel or something where we're reliving the same day, but we are reliving kind of the same activity with each section of the book. And so how to make those as unique um, as each individual character. The fact that you're a pantser makes me want to ask about the structure of the book, because mm -hmm. you go from character to character, you jump in time. And I'm wondering how much of that came from sort of your original writing of it, or was that assembled later on when you were revising? Yeah, I think I imagined the book structure, um, and, and it is this way primarily, around these reunions, right, around these um, uh, living funerals, for lack of a better term. Uh, the book also now has these sort of interstitial chapters that take place in the in the present day. That was something I added last, actually, mm. those chapters I wrote um, very last, and it was to give a, a through line um, to, to the sort of modern day story line that bookends. Um, you know, the rest of these um, reunions. And so, uh, you know, I don't know, you know, as 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 a pantser, I think I yeah, had envisioned these, uh, you know, the book in a way, it's just going to be these funerals, it's just going to be these reunions, and that's it. And uh, sometimes you get to the end and you realize, oh, it's not quite enough for the reader, or it's not quite giving the emotional um, impact that I wanted. And it's being being able to adjust or trim the dime a little bit. And that was um, something I worked very closely with, with my, with my editor, uh, you know, whom, whom I trust, uh, you know, incredibly. I, I wrote a previous novel called The Editor. If anyone is uh, doubtful about the esteem in which I hold the editors, there's such a crucial part of the, of the writing process. Yeah, I love that you included that. And you included that in your acknowledgments for the Gunkel, right? Or was where was I think that? So, yeah. yeah. I was like, that is an excellent acknowledgement to include. Yes, because it's a huge part. But I think the other thing that those present day for the present day of the novel chapters mm -hmm. is like it builds a sense of suspense because you're seeing lead up in one storyline. Yeah. I don't want to say too much about it, but it's but the but structurally, I find it really fascinating to the ways, the differences between, say, what I think of as the biographical time for the characters, like the order in which the characters live their lives, and the mm -hmm. narrative time of how infinite the options are in terms of how you reveal the events to the reader and the choices what? that you've made that way. Yeah, I think uh, I almost wish I had thought to to write these um, present day chapters first, because, you know, I knew I wanted something to happen that underscores the seriousness of, of the pact eventually and sort of bring reins in the silliness a little bit. Um, and and I love how you say it sort of builds suspense in that modern day timeline, because I, I, I absolutely agree with that. I think it does. If I had that from the outline, I could have given myself a little bit more permission to go to go nuts with the other uh, the other funerals uh, and have real uh, fun with it. Um, so after writing those chapters, yeah, then I could go back and reopen um, the previous ones and realize, oh, there's there's room for great, uh, there's room for a little silliness, there's room for fun, there's room for you know all this wonderful um, lowercase d drama um, that happens when when friends uh, when friends get together.
That's the trick though. You know, it's like you learn so much writing a book and at the end of it, there's always this desire to go back as the person who knows the things that you Mm -hmm. know now and write the book with that in mind. But if that were the case, then we would just be writing the same book. We would never publish. Yeah. I mean, that truly is the thing. It does have to be taken away from you. Um, (laughs) This is the first book I wrote, um, you know, here's a little inside baseball here, but the first book that I wrote um, off of a pitch, I sold this book off of a a pitch. Oh, so it can happen for fiction. It can happen for fiction, but this is my fourth novel. Um, that helps. And so I don't know that I loved working this way though. Uh, I don't know that I love that sort of pressure of, okay, we need you to deliver the book by this day and not fully knowing what the book is from the, from the outset, you know, there's a lot of pressure you put on yourself. Oh, what if, what if the book takes me in a different way? What if it's calling me in a different direction than what I promised than what I sold. Um, and so, you know, in this case, it all, it all came together, but, um, there is something very true about, um, you know, deadlines, having it taken out of your hands a little bit, because I would tinker forever and and not just because I understand the book better at the end of a draft than I did at the beginning, but also I'm a better writer, hopefully at the end of each draft than I was at the beginning. And so, so then the writer you are now wants to go back and rewrite it. But um, then there'll be a new one. It's just like, it's forever. It's it's an unwinnable conundrum. You just have to put it into the next book. Yeah. One of those writers who surfaces, uh, once every decade, you know, with a book or something, but yeah, like Donna Tart. Yeah, like Donna Tart. Uh, however, I would have to sell a lot more books I think, before <laughs> I could make that happen. Also, I, gotta eat. I, gotta I mean, eat. as a pantser, would you be happy? Because there's there's not as much new discovery happening if you're on the same story for that long. Yeah, I think the book would be radically reinvented over the years if that were. Yeah, you'd have like five different case. versions. You'd have, yeah, you basically have essentially five different novels and just land on the one that you like. And then you you'd like. only be allowed to sell one of them. So that would be kind yeah, of Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> probably <laughs> better with this system. <laughs> of course. Well, it's been such a treat to to speak to you about the celebrants and the process that went into it. I know everyone's going to enjoy reading it this summer and then knowing a bit about the story behind the process of writing it. Yay. Well, I hope everyone enjoys it. I do feel like it's a wonderful sort of summer read. Um, yeah. With a little more, maybe a little more heft than what you would usually find on the beach, but um, hopefully, you know, hopefully it does feel like hanging out with great friends. So. Yeah. It's like a summer tearjerker. It's like a good, it's a good, wholesome, like yes. heartfelt summer read. Yes. Hopefully with plenty of laughs too. Oh, definitely. Thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you for having me. Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free fitness to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads.